0: We have an exciting announcement here at Riverside Chats, which is that we will be doing a live recording of an upcoming episode of this show at Benston Theater on September 24th, where you can see me on stage in conversation with the man himself from Mannheim Steamroller, Chip Davis. We'll be talking about his subversive approach to the music industry, the creation of Mannheim Steamroller, and how he's helped build spaces like Benson Theater for Omaha culture to flourish. Following the conversation, there will be an opportunity for audience participation and questions. I don't know. Maybe we will, like Mr. Chip Davis himself, sing some Christmas songs, but make them really loud and intense. I don't know what's going to happen. It has to happen live. And hopefully you'll be there with us. Check for tickets at Bensontheater.org An evening with Chip Davis, our first live recorded Riverside Chats since the show premiered on public radio. See you September 24th. From KIOS and Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Sarah Slattery, who's running to represent District 2 in Nebraska's state legislature.
1: That was their issue. Like, can we just stop with this hyper-partisanship? And a lot of people don't even know that the unicameral, A, is a unicameral, B, that it's supposed to be nonpartisan. You know, until the last few years, a lot of people, myself included, were not that politically engaged until probably 2016, um, when people started paying a lot more attention and realized that it is important to vote and get the right kinds of people in office. Otherwise, we're gonna lose our rights.
0: Slattery talks about what drove her to politics and her vision for Nebraska. Stay tuned for the conversation after this break. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Today I'm talking with Sarah Slattery, who is running to represent District 2 in the Nebraska State Legislature. The seat is currently held by Senator Robert Clements, who was appointed by Governor Ricketts in 2017 to replace former Senator Bill Kintner, who resigned after both a cybersex scandal and a subsequent retweet of reference to President Trump's remarks about grabbing women's genitals, with Kintner's retweet suggesting that demonstrators at a women's march weren't attractive enough to be assaulted. Kittner's successor, Robert Clements, is running for re-election to the Republican ticket, and my guest today, Sarah Slattery, is challenging him for that seat. Here's our conversation. I want to start with a little bit about your opponent. So, uh, Senator Robert Clements backed an effort by the Nebraska Freedom Coalition to audit the 2020 election. Clements said he was persuaded that something didn't add up after a presentation by My Pillow CEO, Mike Lindell's close collaborator, the Ohio math teacher, Douglas Frank who gave a presentation claiming that quote he has algorithms to show the election was rigged uh, although Lindell and Frank have struggled in several lawsuits to persuade judges of what Senator Clements apparently found very persuasive uh, so Nebraska's state their secretary of state Bob Evnen has stated that no reports of voter fraud or intimidation occurred that quote nebraskans can be proud of their participation in the election of 2020
1: it's there's also something to be said for he's the only one um, the only Member of the the legislature at all to even entertain something like this. The rest of his colleagues were even shocked by his um, participation in this fifty state audit thing. Um, so that goes that goes to show that he's he's even too conservative for some of them, which is uh, a kind of a scary thing. Um, I'm definitely not representative of of the people that I know that live in in District Two. Um, I think that. You know, I think an algorithm can be made up for just about anything. Uh, and if you can be convinced of something as, 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 and also
0: like deep state versus whatever else. And so that, I imagine that's difficult to navigate as a candidate, particularly in a red state running against a Republican. So, like, how, how do you go about that? How do you make sure that you can actually talk to people as people about observable, reliable facts around them?
1: Well, so the thing that I love about uh, the unicameral as its nonpartisan nature. And in theory, that's a great thing, and that's how it's supposed to be. Um, And I think that, you know, if you get the right people in office, they can work together and make real change. But the way this hyper-partisanship is happening lately, um, people are just, my team's better than your team, and we're not going to work together. And I think that um, my opponent signing onto this thing just proves his dedication to his team and opposition to any kind of getting along or finding a common ground. Um, I am absolutely trying to run. I I love that party affiliation isn't listed on the ballot. I'm running as a candidate to help the working class folks in my district, regardless of party affiliation. I'm not necessarily advertising mine um, because I don't think that that's important. I think what's important is how much I'm willing to help everyday folks uh, with the issues that affect them. And um, he, he's he got a, a pretty hostile voting record in regards to um, legislation that would help the people in my district. He voted against expanding SNAP benefits during the pandemic. He voted against the Seizure Safe Schools Act. He's voted against um, helping kids with disabilities and survivors of sexual assault. And all of these things are pretty abhorrent um, to be voting against. And uh, these are these are things <laughs> that any any good-hearted uh, person, regardless of party affiliation, um, they find common ground. And I, th- I mean, I think that there were only two or three people that voted against the seizure safe schools thing. And he was one of them. Why, why are you voting against kids that have seizures? What is to gain from that? Um, aside from, I guess, saving the state money, but <laughs> if you, I don't know, if you, uh, advertise yourself to be a pro-life candidate, then it seems to me like a no brainer that, um, helping kids with seizures at school is like one of the most pro-life things you can do. Right. Um, so yes. And, and I've seen, I, uh, there's a app called active and you can, as a candidate um, go in and answer. I think there's something like 367 questions and it puts you on this matrix of um, where you fall center, left, right, whatever. Um, I'm pretty centered on the matrix and my opponent is, off the grid on the right so he's even more conservative than former president donald trump on that matrix and i don't think that that's good for anybody i think that if you you're so far one way you can't see the humanity in the people that maybe are politically aligned different than you and i think that that's um, the most important part is is understanding that these are my friends and neighbors, and whether or not we agree on paper, I have to be able to look them in the face and tell them that I want to help them and mean it and do it and He hasn 't done that
0: yeah, I think so the the general. Uh, way that Nebraska is described. There's a couple blue dots, right, and then everything else is very dark red for the most part. And I talked to Ross Benish about this. He wrote the book Rural Rebellion, How Nebraska Became a Republican Stronghold. And his diagnosis was that a lot of the partisanship in Nebraska now is similar to the loyalty that people might have when they watch like professional wrestling. It doesn't necessarily come out of ideological agreement or even like debate, philosophy, or a whole lot of thought. It's sort of just based in this sort of like we have uh, standards of entertainment. We like to watch the people we don't like lose, right? So that maybe the negative partisanship is the way to put it. And so I don't know. I mean, I've on this show often advocated that it seems like that's not a particularly healthy way to run the country or to vote for people to run the country. That a lot of the times if you can actually think if people can build who they are from the ground up as opposed to just say I'm on this team or this team and hope that that works or it doesn't, uh, that leads to a real discussion. And it seems like we're in this period now where there's not a lot of discussion happening or debate. It's all just kind of like, all right, well, we can run the clock until these people win or so and so on and so forth. I mean, do you think Nebraskans in general, are they fed up with this system? Do they want to move past blind partisanship, like in your experience?
1: Yes, absolutely. So um, before the primary, I did a really uh, hardcore text campaign, not an automated texting thing, but where I personally texted um, like 1,500 of my constituents and I would get responses and it would be in real time and I would respond to them. And most of them, that was their issue. Like, can we just stop with this? Um, you know, hyper-partisanship. And I, and I responded and I said, well, the nature, you know, a lot of people don't even know that the unicameral, A, is a unicameral, um, B, that it's supposed to be nonpartisan, who their representative is. It's, you know, until the last few years, a lot of people, myself included, were not that politically engaged until probably 2016 um, when people started paying a lot more attention and realized that it is important to vote and get the right kinds of people in office. Otherwise, we're gonna lose our rights. And the, you can see the rippling effects of 2016 through last week's Supreme Court decisions, plural. Um, you know, with the guns and the and the reproductive rights and things like that. Um, so. I'm heartened to see more people wanting to be po- engaged in the political process. I'm also excited to see that people are really, really sick of this hyperpartisanship because I am too. And I know that that's not a way to get anything done. Um, and I want that's that's my main thing. I want to go in and I want to help people and I want to actually get stuff done.
0: If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Sarah Slattery, who's running to represent District 2 in Nebraska State Legislature. What do you think? What issues do you want the legislature to address in its next session? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089, which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. Do you come from a political family?
1: <laughs> um. So my dad has been the elected public defender for Cass County for the last 30 years. He's finishing out his term and then retiring. Um that's not something he had to run for and it's not something he's ever been opposed in. Cause it's not really a job that anybody particularly wants. Um, but it's been really, you know, so inspirational to see the work my dad has done, um, to help people in my community, um, you know, who maybe make a mistake, get their lives back on track and, and get, you know, adequate and really good represent. He's a great attorney. So they've had, um, you know, the chance to have really good representation. Uh, I know one of his law partners is running um, to replace him. So the county will be in good hands after he's gone. Um, but otherwise, no, <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm a little bit of a, <laughs> I get emotional because I'm passionate about all of this stuff. So don't I'm apologize. a bit of a crier. Been, um, but yeah, no, otherwise not, not a political family. This is my first foray into any kind of uh political anything I'm just a regular I'm a working class single mom I've you know been a lunch lady I'm a professional chef I opened a small business with my folks um but no I mean we've been involved in the community for years my mom is the um president of the Cass County Tourism Board and she's on the board for the Midlands Community Foundation my dad like I said is the public defender he's been on the board for the Cass County Economic Development Committee for uh since they formed um so, you know, public service has been in 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 my family and it's been a value to us, but it's never been elected office public service. It's always just been kind of volunteerism, which is, you know, a se- <laughs> being elected to the Nebraska legislature is essentially volunteerism because the pay is so pitifully low. But, um, you know, I think that and this is like totally changing topics, but I think that 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 has that pay has remained so low. For a reason, and that's to keep these um, independently kind of wealthy people that can uh, legislate for fun as a hobby in office and keep working class people like me out because it would make us live below the poverty level. But I've lived below the poverty level before. I did AmeriCorps for a year, uh, building habitat houses in North Omaha, and I'm not afraid to do it again. So...
0: Well, so it's interesting because you you mentioned a few things, which is one, a lot of people go through their lives uh, not being particularly aware or interested in local politics, right? They look at the top of the ticket and maybe they don't care that much about the rest. But it does feel, and certainly a lot of people who have come on this show have said, "2016 was a change for them," where it's sort of like, "Oh, I guess I should be more engaged. Uh, maybe it does matter, and maybe even if I can't change the top of the ticket, I can change things at a lower level." Right? So, for you, what was that change? Why was that the earth shattering moment? Like, what what impact did it have on your life? Um,
1: well, I, like I said, I'm a single mom. I have a I have a daughter, and um, things are as now even scarier, um, you know, raising a daughter in in this climate. It was the writing was on the wall when 2016 happened. And a lot of people thought that folks, you know, women with their pink hats and stuff were overreacting. But now we see that that wasn't the case. So um, and the further down we slid, um, just the more it was, you know, an eye opener that Something needs to change. And so I was approached by a guy I went to high school with um, who's currently the uh, A.A. Is that what it's called? A assistant for um, one of the senator. <laughs> no, but you know what I'm talking about? They get two aides. Oh, yeah, aides. Administrative yeah, yeah, yeah. aid okay. and legislative oh, God, aid. So yeah, he's okay, the administrative yeah. aid um, for one of the senators. And he approached me a couple years ago and said, we need to get. Clements out of office and I think that either you or your mom would be really great candidates and I without hesitation I mean I, I thought about it a little bit but I didn't even mention it to my mom she's retirement age she doesn't need to be taking on something like this even though she could probably afford it a little bit better than me um, I've got the energy and the <laughs> conviction and the wherewithal and the I'm so motivated to do this uh, so I you know I thought about it for a second and I got back to him and I said yeah what, what do we have to do um so, you know, and then after I'd already decided to do it, I broke the news to my folks who were not super enthused because not that they, not that they don't think that I can do it, um, but they're just afraid of now I'm going to cry. They they don't want me to get hurt. And we saw uh, the last go round with uh, this opponent. He, put out some really nasty attack ads against his um against Susan Lawrence who ran against him last time one of them like calling her a pig or something and they're you know my folks are worried about me and you know that's not going to hurt me the way he legislates is going to hurt me and um he's already hurt me and my family more than any attack ad can so but so they were worried, like 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 parents do. Um, but eventually, they I wasn't giving it up, and now they've come around, and I've got them sporting my pride rainbow tie dye T shirts, and you know putting signs in the yard of their business, which. Well, it shouldn't be bad business. Our name is it's Slattery Vintage Estates. I would hope. I mean, I I think people would expect, you know, signs that say Slattery to be there. Although one random Yelp reviewer complained about the political signs, which I thought was kind of weird, but whatever. (laughs) Um, But, yeah, so uh, I've got my folks are now fully on board. Super helpful, which is great because we have a wonderful uh, venue to host events um, that's right smack in the middle of legislative district two and if I if I do say so myself it's rather beautiful. Um, it, and that's the you know, my family's Slattery Vintage Estates, Vineyard and Tasting Room, not trying to <laughs> get free advertising or anything. That's just what I've been doing for the last fifteen years. So um, yeah. I don't know what the question was, but Well I'm not sorry
0: <laughs> that moment So, 2016 changes the game for a lot of people. And you got to the point where you decided that it was going to be worth all the pain that comes along with running for office. Because, you know, like a lot of people who have money, that have some kind of like status, it seems natural that people say at some point, why don't you run for something, right? Whereas a lot of people who don't have that, who don't come from that traditional background, are not told that they should, but you. You. So, what was it about you where somebody said, "You know what, you've got what it takes. You're the right energy to do this," even though you're not exactly what everyone in the legislature already is.
1: Um, I don't know what it was that he saw in me, but obviously there was something there, and it's it's, uh, you know, ignited this this fire in me, and I know that I can do it. Um, I've spent a lot of time doing, um, training and research and all kinds of stuff so that I can come about this as, you know, the best possible candidate that I can be, but also staying authentic. And, and I think that that's part of it is I'm a real person. I'm, I'm pretty relatable. I'm pretty well liked uh, for the most part. Um, Like I said, I've been a, I was a school nutrition director for a few years. I went into uh, my daughter's small Catholic school in Plattsmouth and I, totally revamped the lunch program, brought in a fresh fruit and vegetable bar, brought back a lot of scratch cookery because I'd been a professional chef for um, several years, 15 plus. Um, so I came in and I brought that mentality and this restaurant quality um, approach to the, the hot lunches. Um, and the participation in my school lunch program went up a ton. And I have huge fans in all of these kids and all of these parents. Um, So yeah, knowing that I already had a a pretty solid base of people who really, really liked me um, because they know what I can do in creating change. Right. Um, That was a nice (laughs) uh, motivation to, to try something, try something else um, where I can help people in another meaningful way. Um, yeah.
0: Well, another thing that it seems like it, it people come from this idea that like I don't know enough to be in the state legislature. But then at a certain point, when you watch enough of the live streams and you hear some of the speeches, I think it also is demystifying when you have a little bit of exposure to it, right? When you have some reason to think like, well, are they all actually experts on everything? Right? Uh, because a lot of the time, no, they're not.
1: No, absolutely right. And I'm not. And I'm a, like a lifelong learner. I love learning new skills and new things. And like I took a sculptural welding as a hobby I mean I i love learning new stuff and i figure this is just another um, thing i can learn about but also um it doesn't really matter what i know about the way to do things in the legislature right because that can be learned it's more important that i know and connect with the people who i'm going to be representing and that's what I'm working on now and that's and that's that's the most important part is getting to know these people, getting them to trust me and getting them to, to really understand that I'm, I'm here to help them and I want to. And I think that that's something that hasn't been the case for a really long time. I couldn't, you know, I couldn't tell you (laughs) until I did my research about who ran the last time around. Um, It's been a lot of uh, traditional campaigning with mailers and maybe phone calls and, I guess door knocking, which are all valid um, things, but I'm trying to come into this uh, with an approach of a little bit younger mindset. I just turned 40 last week, I'm not that young, but I'm, I'm of the younger generation where I don't necessarily answer my phone, right, to a f- number I don't know. I'm not home that often, and I probably am not gonna answer my door for somebody that I don't know, especially in this <laughs> day and age where, you know, open carry things like that. You never know who's showing up at your door. Um, And on that same vein, I don't know who's coming to the door of a house that I'm knocking at and if they're going to be angry with me. So I'm trying to uh, come up with new, innovative ways to campaign. Um, So I've recruited some younger folks to be running my campaign for me. I'm really excited. I just uh, got another one on board this morning. So I have like a recent college grad and a kid who's still in high school who's super um wonderful. His name is Jaden. He's the uh, head of the Students Demand Action in the state um, for, you know, against gun gun violence. Um, super inspiring, motivated 17-year-old. Like, the things that he's done by the time he's 17, I am like, I'm, I just turned 40, and I'm not even this accomplished. He's wonderful. So I managed to get him um, on my campaign with me, and it's, it's going to be really great. I'm excited about coming up with new ways to connect with voters, because I know that everybody says, these are the things you have to do. You have to send mailers. You have to, well, mailers are expensive. And I don't, my mail is all in the back seat of my car. Like, <laughs> there, are diff- there are better ways to do this. And so I'm excited about coming at this with a new approach um, to try and get the younger generation out voting and um, engaged in the process and feeling like they're being heard. Because I think that that's a huge part of it is getting stuff in the mail, vote for me, vote for me. The Well, why? And do you care? Do you even know, you know, do you care about me and where I'm at? And I, so I'm trying to put a face with the name. I'm, uh, I know that my best attribute is going to be meeting with people in person and finding a common ground with them um, to talk about regardless of their party affiliation. Um, and that's where my platform comes in so my platform is all kind of based around helping working class families thrive, um, education and school nutrition, small business supporting small businesses, healthcare accessibility and supporting workers' rights. Um, and within those four things, there's. Definitely something that I can talk to anybody about. And if all else fails, I can talk to them about the school lunch because everybody has memories of hot lunch, right, Um, good or bad. But you remember, I'm the lovable lunch lady. That's my hashtag Um, is hashtag lunch lady for legislature. So, you know, I'm trying to uh, create a memorable experience so that people – when they go to vote they're like oh yeah that's the lunch lady she was great she really listened to me and and wanted to hear what i had to say so
0: yeah so okay let's talk about those pillars then of your campaign so let's go through maybe one by one here so one of the ones that you have on there is small business which comes from being involved in small business yes. so let's talk about that what what have you learned from running a small business and being a part of one that influences your belief in what the legislature could do to help others doing it
1: well so and a lot, a lot of this um has really shifted in the last couple of years in the face of the pandemic, right? We saw so many small businesses, especially the ones in these small rural communities, close because there was no safety net in place. Well, because we'd never had anything like this happen before. So we need to do better going forward because these are people's livelihood. This is their their dream. And they put it all in to open their ice cream shop or their, I don't know, car mechanic shop <laughs> <laughs> or you know a little cafe or whatever it is um, of course most of my examples are gonna be food related because that's that's where my head's at always um but we saw so many people's dreams get crushed because there was nothing there to support them and so finding ways that because a lot of the times, these are the these small businesses are the backbone of these little communities. Also, um, legislative district two has, on average, the longest commute time of any district in the state. So that means people in my district drive further for work, which means less time at home, less time with their kids, less time to make dinner and and. I don't know, play board games or whatever. So supporting these small businesses keeps people working closer to where they live, um, which means more time with your family, which means all the Yahtzee you want to play, I guess. Um, but so I think that that's really important for a quality of life uh, thing, but also it keeps these these rural towns lively because it they're, they're dying. Um, a lot of them have just become bedroom communities. And like I said, people commute to work, uh, but we can do better than that. I used to live in Murray, Um, which is just south of Plattsmouth, a little town. Um, It's now getting revitalized. There's a new bakery there, a Mexican restaurant. I think they're putting in something else. Um, But when I lived there, there was nothing. You have to drive three miles to go to a gas station to get a pop. Like, it's, yeah, it's kind of desolate and and not not real um, appealing. And so I see why people want to move from these small towns to where there are things for them to do. Um, so yeah, so that, that part of small business, we need to be able to support them so that they don't, you know, go out of business because of something like a pandemic. Um, but then also like I, and this is a segue into my workers' rights, I firmly believe that everyone who works 40 hours a week should not, should be living above the poverty level. However... I know that the reality is that a lot of these small businesses can't afford to jump to a fifteen-hour minimum wage, um, and stay afloat right away. Like somebody like Walmart or Target or um, these big corporations can, right? These these smaller businesses maybe need some kind of support to move from. And we already have a higher minimum wage than the federal minimum wage, but I I think that fifteen is is appropriate and the minimum that we should be doing for people to make sure that they can uh, provide for their families Um, but at the same time I see the, the struggle that it would create for some of these small businesses so figuring out ways to help these small businesses transition if and when that Minimum wage gets raised,
0: yeah, so I mean, I think in the past there's been incremental wage raises, wage wage raises, right? So I mean, it also seems to me that there'd be an issue of communication, right of you coming from a background of understanding the hardship of having employees of paying, right. Uh, maybe there's a way in the legislature to bring that personal experience to the conversation of okay how do we bring everybody in here to find something that works right so i mean the next step from having these ideas is figuring out how do you get the legislature to get on board with them right so do do you have an idea or strategy for what it's going to take to get other people on board with some of your concepts
1: um i mean again it's i think you know trying to find um other elected officials that are willing to you know find a middle ground and and understand that if this they're elected to be in service of their constituents and not their egos um so you know maybe getting as much testimony and and real life constituents of theirs from their districts and and everywhere to come in and say this is how this would help me this is how it will directly affect people in your district um you know i guess i think that that's the best way to do it is to have their voters convince them to do the right thing. Um, because you're right. Me from, from over here isn't going to convince somebody from the western part of the state that this is what they need to do for their people. Their people are, are who's going to convince them to do it. So, um, yeah, and I guess just finding me, hopefully some other small business owners get elected too. Um, I know there's some really good candidates up this year uh, for election to the legislature. Um, so, yeah, just... Hopefully people do their research, find their candidates that that fall most in line, not just politically or ideologically, but maybe, you know, economically and lifestyle, you know, maybe I'm not ideologically politically aligned with somebody, but maybe they're also a working class single mom and face these same struggles and they need to realize that I'm going to be looking out for their best interests maybe more than than my opponent would because I go through the same struggles that they do.
0: I'm talking with Sarah Slattery, who's running to represent District 2 in Nebraska's state legislature. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Stay tuned for the rest of the conversation after this break. Of hours of content here on Riverside Chats now. Our backlog has over 100 episodes. We're expanding into live events, and we have an exciting future for the show that we hope to be able to get to you. To make the show as good as it can be and to continue to give you the kinds of conversations that you listen for, the reason why you subscribed in the first place, to hear coverage of arts, ideas, politics whatever it is that brings you here every time, please consider becoming a supporter of the show by making a sustaining monthly donation of $1, $5, whatever you can afford, and really whatever you think the show is worth, which may be zero. In which case, ouch, but okay. If you are interested in becoming a supporter, please look in the podcast notes. There should be a link in there that you can find that gives you all the information you need. Otherwise, thank you for considering supporting the show, and more more importantly, thank you for listening. welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, whatever your favorite app is. And while you're there, we don't really have that many reviews. Please give us a review if you're feeling like it. It can be a bad one. That's fine. Whatever. Just give us a review. Today I'm talking with Sarah Slattery, who's running to represent District 2 in Nebraska's state legislature. We're talking about her story, her vision, and what she thinks the legislature should do to be more truly representative than she sees it as now. Here's the rest of our conversation. Yeah, another one of your issues, one of your polls, is education. Yes. Which is a hot-button issue in Nebraska this year in particular, with a lot of the gubernatorial race being centered around who hates critical race theory the most. Uh, definitely was not about who can coherently define what CRT is. Right. Uh, but schools, you know, they are battlegrounds now in several ways. And uh, Republican gubernatorial candidate Jim Pillen has promised to impose censorship on material he finds anti-American, which is always sort of vaguely defined. It's not clear what that will look like or how it will be enforced. But at the same time, uh, all of these sort of proposals are happening. There are these exoduses from Nebraska schools. Uh, Staff is leaving due to low pay, oftentimes low levels of support. So the climate suggests that Nebraska teachers could probably expect to not necessarily get paid that much more, but still be oftentimes scapegoats in the culture war. Yeah. So it's not a pretty picture. Uh, You know, Broadly, why should people become teachers right now? And why should, if they are teachers, should they stay in Nebraska?
1: I mean... (laughs) that's a heavy question um you know and and i think for far too long we've tried to convince people to be teachers because it's the most noble profession but why don't we pay them like that then um i don't know i don't know how to convince them other than like please we need you it'll get better i mean i've got teacher at their learning center in plattsmouth um I've got teacher family. I've got it's it is it is the noblest profession. Um and it's not everybody can do it, right? I can't imagine being a second grade teacher like my mom did. It's there's some people that are just made for it and um please please stay there. We need you and uh it'll it has to get better, but yes, no. Um the funding education too right now everybody's everybody's property taxes went up and I just Loathe that that is how we fund our schools because that makes certain that schools are inequitably funded, um, right? Because if you're in a, quote, poorer part of town, then your school is going to be poorer, right? thats That sucks. Um, our students deserve better, regardless of what part of town they live in or what family they get born into. They should all have the same quality of education. Um, so I think we need to look into... Other ways to fund our schools than relying so heavily on property taxes, both because that's a huge burden for people <laughs> to them. Legit, it was a while ago that I read about it, but they, they turned it around and they don't rely so much on property taxes now. And their kids are doing better um, and and the schools are more equitably funded, um, which is like my key word, because equally funded, not necessarily, right? We need to be equitably funded. We need to make sure that every kid has the same level and opportunity regardless of learning disability or socioeconomic status or anything like that but um yeah so that's a huge but yeah then to get back to your CRT thing like that you're right what is what even is it please please explain it to me you're so against it what tell me what it is
0: they don't know yeah. i used to carry around a, a definition that ricketts gave of it that was just a very long paragraph that didn't say a whole lot i don't have it in front right. of me right now but what it just what that tells me is it it's whatever somebody wants it to be if they want to stop somebody from doing something right um and that that's scary you know that's a scary uh sort of imposition to put on a workforce that already is very fragile
1: right and it's i mean i hate these like fabricated boogeyman phrases like crt or now it's what is it emotional learning what is yeah Social yeah emotional, okay. yeah now that's the big boogeyman like g- god forbid these kids can talk about their feelings like that that's so terrible it's it's the things that that folks are getting upset about it's like i don't i don't even understand it but and then to get back to your point about um banning things that aren't patriotic like when has getting rid of things to learn from ever been a good idea right even if it's something that's um difficult or hard to read or or controversial we still need to let people explore these things and realize why they're bad for themselves like (laughs) you can't um say no 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 don't don't look at that don't read it It's bad, and then just have people be like, "Okay," because when has that ever worked, right?
0: Well, and kids in general, I think when you tell them this is banned, are much more likely to read it. Oh yeah, no, it's assigned in class. Yes,
1: as soon as that (laughs) mouse book got banned in where was it Georgia or one of the southern states, I ordered it for my daughter, and I'm like, "You're going to read this because for some reason people don't want you to," and I don't see how a graphic novel about the Holocaust is going to be a bad thing for anybody, any kid to read. Um, But yeah, generally, the things that they ban are things that will only help kids be more empathetic and more understanding of the world around them. And I don't know why we think that's a bad thing.
0: Yeah, I remember as a kid when the Da Vinci Code was a big one. <laughs> um it was it was banned. I remember it was even like, you know, on the there were religious circles that saying like there's something evil about the book. And I remember you know thinking like, oh man, I better read this because I'm so curious. There's all this controversy. And you read it, it's like it's just a dumb adventure book. Right. You know, like this isn't even I don't know that the people creating controversy care enough about the actual content of the book to even read it. Right. It just becomes another culture war artifact. And then we get stuck in these dumb battles over nothing instead of actually talking about how do we fund schools in a way that will be equitable or less of a tax burden or anything that seems like maybe these are the conversations legislatures should be having.
1: Yes. I think my favorite banned book that I ever got to read uh, – I got to read it in high school for a project was Fahrenheit 451, which is a book that's been banned and it's about banning books. and So it's just even funnier that yeah. like <laughs> – you know, they're, it's so predictable now. Like, if we write about what you're doing wrong, you're going to ban that, too. Um, but, yeah, that was that's still, to this day, one of my favorite books. And I know at what temperature paper burns. So, <laughs> double win.
0: Yeah. Well, OK, so So to move on from that, then. Yes. So school nutrition is another factor, yes. uh, another one of the big pillars of your campaign. I don't know that I've heard a lot of people talking about that in the state legislature races in general. So t- tell me, what, what's your pitch? How do we improve the school system through nutrition?
1: Yeah. So that's and I've heard that a lot. People are like, that's not something that people talk about. Well, it's well, it's what I talk about. Um, so the last two years, uh, we've had universal school meals for all kids in the country because the federal government passed this emergency funding. And what I've seen firsthand in the improvement in the the lives and performance of the kids, the um, the fact that parents don't have to pack their kids' lunches or worry about the school bill is improving the the lives of the working families. Um, but also, like now, trying to find you can't find a lunchable, like you know, uh, the the supply chain shortages, all of that. Um, so I've gotten to see firsthand all the benefits that that providing universal school meals have had um, on both the kids and the families. And the fact that, wow, it didn't bankrupt the government to do this. So it is totally doable. It is worth the cost. Um, and I I think that if, and the federal government is not stepping up this year to do it again. So I think that Maybe trying to find ways that we can fund it at a state level to make sure that kids, all kids, are guaranteed a hot, nutritiously dense meal every day uh, at school and in the summer. I think they even do it. Um, I think that that's really important. I mean, and what there are some people that don't want their money to feed kids, but I don't want to meet them in a dark alley because <laughs> I think that uh, that is one of the most important things we can do. Um is make sure that our kids are taking care of and feeding them. And it, and it costs next to nothing to these school lunches. If you're doing it right, they don't cost very much. There are requirements that uh, you have to follow in regards to whole grain, sodium content, Um, vegetable subgroup you know you have to have different colored vegetables every day and all of this so these are really really healthy meals they're way healthier than the kids lunchable and bag of doritos that they bring from home um and they they were at no cost to the families which i think was really really great and yeah it's it's absolutely doable and i think that we need to continue it
0: what do you think i mean so the argument against providing something like that that the state would pay for it is is I mean is that rooted in just this sort of like general demonization of any kind of welfare?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Right, what, poor people don't deserve stuff.
0: <laughs> why do you think that's such effective messaging?
1: I don't know. I don't know. Like, and especially, you know, we claim to be pro life, and uh, what's one of the things that's essential to life is food, right? So we should be, you know, food shelter these are necessities we should be making sure that everyone gets fed and housed um but these are the biggest things that people don't want their money to go for for helping i, I don't i don't understand the disconnect there right um it, to be truly uh pro life we need to be pro um <laughs> the actual lives of these people that are that are here that are struggling um
0: is yeah, that uh, what the George Carlin one if you're pre-birth, they like you uh, preschool, you're aft.
1: Right, right. And, right, and, and the fact of the matter is these kids, these school-age kids, they have, it's not their fault where they're, where they are in life. It's not, most of the time, it's not their parents' fault either. Um, but why are we punishing these children for, well, you're poor, sorry kid, like, you don't get to eat. And there's something to be said for, um, there's a stigma, there has been a stigma in the past for the poor kids that have taken advantage of free and reduced meals and, um, the other kids make fun of them for it or they get, you know, and so if we do this universal thing, well then it doesn't matter. It's everybody gets it and everybody's on the same playing field and, um, nobody gets singled out because they're, you know, needy or whatever. I just think it's the least we can do. Um, it obviously doesn't cost them enough to, 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 tank our country we've we're doing that fine in other areas um but yeah the importance of a nutritious nutritiously dense meal guaranteed for each kid in their performance in the classroom it's i mean it's it's they go hand in hand yeah um nourish their bodies to nourish their minds
0: if you're just joining us i'm talking today with sarah slattery who's running to represent district two in nebraska's state legislature what do you think what issues do you want the legislature to address in its upcoming sessions? Join the conversation on social media or call in with a brief voicemail to 402-881-0089 which we may play in one of our upcoming shows. You've written that it is essential that we bring accessible health care to the more rural parts of Nebraska. Improving our infrastructure, bringing high-speed internet to the whole state will help with the health care shortage rural Nebraskans face. So can you explain that a little bit? What does that mean? What does it look like?
1: Well, so um well, you don't you can't really live in this day and age without internet, right? Um, and even, so my folks' vineyard is halfway between Lincoln and Omaha. We don't have high-speed internet. We have to have satellite. Um, so the the western part of the state, there's just nothing. And satellite internet sucks. It's not reliable. It's not great. Um, so how do we expect highly trained professionals to move out to the middle of nowhere if we can't even give them the basic necessity of you know living in these this day and age which is uh access to the internet so that is one step to get to entice folks to move out to these super rural areas and be healthcare providers or teachers or whatever uh we're in need of out there is uh we have to be able to give them their comforts that they would be able to have in the in the more urban areas um Otherwise, yeah, we're just not going to get it's and, and the you know, the younger people are going to keep migrating to the cities and the populations of these more rural areas are going to keep getting older and not have anybody out there to take care of them.
0: Yeah, it's funny. We talk about brain drain a lot in the context of people leaving Nebraska, but also just leaving rural parts of Nebraska to Omaha, Lincoln, whatever. Right. That's another version of it. yep well, I mean, what, what do you see the, the culture of these rural places looking like 10, 15 years?
1: Well, hopefully, um, with some improved infrastructure, uh, we can get some more. It's an absolutely beautiful um, place to be. Every park is economically diverse. We have a family cabin in in the sandhills. It's Um, awesome up there. It's super beautiful. Like you can see every star in the sky at night. Uh, But yeah, there's just not a lot of incentive to live there permanently because there aren't these comforts that we have um, that we're used to here in the more. Urban areas. So hopefully we can get some of that back out there. Hopefully we can get some um, more welcoming and progressive policies to safeguard, you know, a more diverse population's rights out in these rural areas. Um, because I think that that's also it can be a scary thing if you're part of a marginalized group to move out to where you think it might be a hostile environment, um, you know, because you don't look like most of the people that live there. Um so I think make, making sure that we have safeguards in place for these people so they feel so they feel comfortable moving out to these rural areas I think is going to do a lot in the way of encouraging them out there. And because yeah, it's you can't it's getting more and more expensive to live in the city and in these urban areas. Real estate is out of control. So it's definitely more affordable to live in the rural areas, but definitely scary for for vulnerable people so
0: well and so speaking of vulnerable people at the time of recording this many are predicting that a total or at least substantial abortion ban is likely to pass at a special legislative session something that ricketts has stated he is working toward with the legislature uh how do you see that impacting nebraska
1: <sighs> well um i think that I, i've i've done you know i've seen a lot of uh, reactions online in person on the news Um, and I can say that it's feasible that our university enrollments are going to go down because this is not a safe place to go to college for young women. If, um, you know, if, if we pass these kinds of extreme legislation and and you're a victim of an assault on a college campus, which let's be real, that happens a lot. Um, this is not a safe place for that to happen. Well, that's not a safe thing to happen anyway, but, and then what, you know, um, so I can see a lot of young especially young young women or um folks with with uteruses uh moving out of state to go to college to a to a more welcoming and friendly state if something like that were to happen to them um i think that you know i think that that's gonna a lot of people are gonna a lot of the younger generation do not agree with a lot of this stuff um and it's just gonna drive more brain drain more people out um and leave us with an ever-aging population and no young people to stay here and do the work and take care of them. Um, so I don't know what's pro-life about that, right? Uh, but, you know, my stance is that um, health care decisions, no matter what they are, are between the patient and the doctor and the government has no place in that exam room, right? It's not it's not anybody's business, but yours and your doctor's, no matter what the decision is that needs to be made. Um, and I'm fully for a complete separation of church and state. So this argument that it's, you know, we're a Christian nation, um, regardless of how I affiliate, that's just not true. Um, and I think that that disenfranchises and overlooks a lot of people um, and, and alienates them and makes them feel not welcome and not part of the process. And I think that now more than ever, that's really important.
0: So are there any other issues we haven't talked about today that you want to make sure people do know about you?
1: Uh, that I'm normal? I'm uh, <laughs> just a regular – no, I guess I'm not no, – what's normal? Um, I'm just a regular, uh, regular mom. Um, you know, I, I would be the first woman elected to this seat, and I think that that is something that's really important. I think it's about time. And, uh, you know, the legislature current makeup is only 26 percent women. We're 50 percent of the population and we need to be at least equally represented. We need to be represented in proportion um, to our population, you know, everywhere that uh, decisions about our lives are being made. So I think that that's one thing that, yeah, vote for vote for a woman because we need one (laughs) in this seat specifically. Especially.
0: (laughs) Okay, so if people do want to learn more about your campaign or get involved in any way, where should they go?
1: So my website is slatteryforlegislature.com. My last name is S-L-A-T-T-E-R-Y. I've got Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. All of those are linked through my website. Um, You can also, you know, donate to my campaign there. Um, because, like, I, I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I'm a grassroots candidate. All of my, almost all of my funding has come from um, small individual donations. I have been endorsed by the Nebraska State Education Association, which is the teachers' union, and they gave me um, a little, a nice check uh, with their endorsement letter, which was really great and helped uh, help me get some new um, walk cards and signs and stuff right before the primary. But it's it costs a lot to to do. A campaign, and my opponent is a banker and is backed by the governor, and he has no problem funding his campaign. I that's where I'm struggling, so uh, I'll take anything I can get.
0: Well, it's been great to get to know you, what you're about, and what your vision is for Nebraska. So, thanks so much for being here today.
1: Yes, thank you so much. It was a pleasure.
0: Riverside Chats is a production of KIOS 915 FM Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by The Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Noblock.